You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. That scripture being read comes from Acts chapter 2. It is the Pentecost. It is the church's birthday. It's when the Holy Spirit comes down on all believers and enters our hearts, and and there's this uh, radically inclusive idea that God is doing something big. We're doing a sermon series on radical women of the Bible. We've done two Old Testament stories, one of Esther last week. First week was the daughters of Zelophehad. I pray that you remember that for the rest of your days. Write it on that bulletin that you kept forever. Today we're moving into the New Testament. We're going to do two stories from the New Testament, and we're going to talk about Lydia. But just as always, to let you know, uh, questions and answers, if you have any questions or answers to questions that I pose, feel free to send them. I'm going to pull this out now so that if I see any come through, we can try to do some real-time stuff. But if not, uh, this is going to be on there, and you can let me know, and we'll have some time to take questions at the end. And if there aren't any, I'm going to awkwardly move into my summary. That's how we do that. Background for Lydia. Lydia's story is sandwiched in between two other stories, and then she gets one little tag at the end. And so I want to kind of give you what's going on. We're, we're after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. We're in the book of Acts, which comes after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four Gospels, which are the four stories of Jesus' life. We move into Acts, which is, which is the story of how the church is birthed and how it moves and shapes and, and heads out into the world. And then halfway through, uh, not halfway through, a third of the way through, we meet a character named Paul. And Paul is a follower of Jesus, who becomes one, who starts planting all these churches. He's a missionary that goes around, and he starts planting all these churches. And he's trying to plant a church. He's trying to plant churches in, in, this, in this region, and the Holy Spirit keeps preventing him from going in. And he keeps going, well, I'm going to go over here then. And the Holy Spirit says, you can't. I'm not letting you go in. Then he says, okay, I'm going to go to this city. And it's all, it's all in the Middle East, all up in kind of Asia Minor, around a country maybe we would know today as Turkey. And he keeps saying, I'm going to go into this city. And the Holy Spirit says, absolutely not. And then one night, it says he's sleeping. And he gets a vision of a man, a Macedonian man, Greek man. And he knows he's a Macedonian man because the man says, hey, Paul, Come to Macedonia and help us. And Paul says, this must be the Holy Spirit asking me to go over to Greece. And the really interesting thing that I'm not even going to get into today is he has a vision of a Macedonian man. And when he shows up, he finds this woman named Lydia. And that's our story today. Good news for today comes from Acts chapter 16, 11 through 15. Then there's another story and then we get 40. It says this. Paul, it's actually Luke writing as he's traveling with, with, these, with Paul and this other guy named Silas. And so Luke says, we sailed from Traus. I don't, guys, I don't know the names of these places either. You think I would. I paid enough money to learn it. They didn't teach me any how to say any of these names. We sailed from Traos, uh, straight from Samothrace. If I said Samothrace, you'd be like, that sounds right. I don't know. And we came to Neapolis, that one looks better, the following day. From there, we went to this city called Philippi. 
Maybe you've heard of it. There's a letter that Paul writes later to the Philippians. He comes to the city of Philippi, a city of Macedonians, first district, and a Roman colony. We stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath, on Saturday, we went outside of the city gate to the riverbank where we thought there might be a place for prayer. Some background information here. The city doesn't have a synagogue. To have a synagogue, a Jewish place of worship, you need 10 men, which is called a Jewish quorum. If you don't have 10 Jewish men, you can't have a church. And so there's no synagogue. And so Paul has to go outside the city gate because uh, the Jews had to worship outside the city sometimes. And so he goes down to this riverbank where he thought he might find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to talk with the women who had gathered. One of those women was Lydia. And then we learned a bunch of information about Lydia. She's a non-Jewish woman. That's what Gentile means. But she worships the Jewish God. These were called God-fearers. They hadn't gone all the way into converting, but they believed that the God of the universe was the one revealed to Israel in the Old Testament. And so Lydia was a Gentile, non-Jewish God worshiper from the city of Thyatira. She dealt in purple cloth. As she listened to Paul speak, the Lord opened her heart to embrace Paul's message. A lot of stuff must have happened, but ultimately what the next verse tells us is that once she and her household were baptized, she urged Paul and Silas and Luke If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she persuaded us. Then there's another story where Paul is walking around doing some ministry. And this woman with an evil spirit that helps her know supernatural things started following Paul and Silas around. And she kept yelling out behind them as they were walking around, These men are from the Lord and they've come to teach you the way of salvation. These men are in the Lord. They come to teach you the way of salvation. Paul is annoyed. You're like, this is the greatest hype woman in history. And he's like, this is annoying. I'm so done with this. He turns around, exercises the demon right out of her. But she was a slave girl and she belonged to somebody and they were using her for profit. They were using her supernatural ability for profit. And so that's, that, that group of people that owned her Took, took Paul and Silas to the court. They got him arrested. He got thrown in jail. That night, Paul and Silas and Luke are all laying in jail, and it's midnight, and they're singing, and they're praying, and, and a miracle happens, and the walls come tumbling down, and they are free. And, and what would happen is if you were a jailer and your inmates got out, you got the death penalty, And so this jailer was like, I'm going to be killed, so I might as well just kill myself. That's what this is a depiction of. And Paul and Silas are like, hold on. Please don't kill yourself, at least not without accepting Jesus first. And he says, what must I do to be saved? They, They preach some gospel to him. He's like, I'm in. I'm all the way in. Him and his whole household is converted. Uh, And then it says the chapter ends this way. Paul and Silas left the prison, and they made their way back to Lydia's house, where they they encouraged the brothers and the sisters. Questions? 
comments, insights about the background, the story, the scripture, the text. It, no questions about how to pronounce city names, please. Samothrace, eh? That can't be right, but it does sound cool. What can we take from this text? Here's how we preach at the table. Head, heart, hand, something for us to know, something for us to feel or experience, something for us to do. Gives us a wholehearted faith, a holistic faith that moves from our head to our heart to our hands. And here's what I want to take away from Lydia's story. And there's a lot, even in a few verses, but here's what's standing out to me in the midst of this theme, in the midst of this sermon series. Is that at the end of the day, leadership is influence. Whatever we mean by leadership, we mean influence. I get this idea from John Maxwell, who wrote a million books on leadership. And he says, leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. If you are being salt and light as Jesus commanded, then you have begun to obey God's call to leadership. In every sense of this word and definition, Lydia is a leader. She's a business leader. She runs her own business, dyeing purple cloth and dealing purple cloth. I mean, this was the cloth of royalty. This was the cloth of uh, soldiers. So she's dealing with high, powerful, successful people, getting them this purple cloth. She comes from a region that's famous for dyeing purple cloth. Uh, she, there's, a, there's a guild of purple cloth dyers in Philippi that we know about from outside of Scripture. She is a power player in the purple cloth industry. What they would do is they would dye this thing called matter root. They would dye it? No, they would boil it and take the color from it and dye cloth. And she had her own business at this time doing this. She's co-leading these Jewish women in worship. I hope you allow me to say Jewish because they're Gentile God-fearers. Uh, so they're Jewish, you know, like they're kind of Jew Jewish. And so she's co-leading this group of women who gathered together to worship the one and only true God in the midst of this community. After hearing the message of Jesus, Jesus, she leads her whole home into being baptized. No mention of any men. I mean, she would have to get permission from a man if there was some man present in her home, a father or a husband, but there's none. She's doing it. And this household doesn't just mean her nuclear family. It doesn't mean children or any. It, it means everyone who's a part of this business that lives there, servants or slaves or people that she, co-workers or people that work for her. She ultimately leads her whole house into being baptized, including herself. She led Paul and Silas to come to her home and stay there, which we'll talk about is no small feat. And her home becomes the spot for brothers and sisters to meet and be encouraged by Paul and Silas after they get out of prison. She was influential. She was persuasive. She was successful. By every definition of the word, Lydia is a leader because she's using her influence in a powerful way. I heard this story this week about Barbara Johns. This is a statue of her. This is a picture of her. Uh, essentially, what would happen is like 1953, and she is in the South, and she has a, a segregated school, a school just for black kids. And there's, it was built for 200 kids, but 500 kids ended up showing up. And there's not enough room. And so there was some protest at the school board, and the school board built some tar paper shacks to kind of try to accommodate 
And she tells the story about how her teacher was also her bus driver. And so he would get up early and he would come and pick up all the students. And then he'd get into the class and he'd have to start a fire in this old cast iron stove. And it was, if you sat too close, you were boiling hot. And if you were too far away, you were freezing cold. And so a lot of kids wore jackets and it was leaking everywhere. And they had to use umbrellas while they were in the classroom. And the man that was trying to prepare lessons for them also had to get up at the crack of dawn to split wood and drive the bus, and it's 1953. Like, she knew at 15 and a half years old that this wasn't right. And so she started talking to the adults in her life, her parents, and her parents said, well, that's just the way things are sometimes. So then she started talking to some teachers, and they said, we, we don't know what to do. Administration is famously not helpful sometimes. Am I right, teachers? Hey. <laughs> There's like eight teachers in here, and they're like, is this being recorded? <laughs> Finally, one teacher said, well, why don't you do something about it? And so she began having meetings. First, she brought some kids to the school board meeting, and they were unhelpful and unsympathetic. So she began having her own meetings at the bleachers, and that happened for a few months. And finally, they came up with the plan. And the plan was this. Let's put in a fake phone call to get the principal off campus. So they called the office and they said, some of your students are creating problems downtown. You better come pick them up before they get in trouble. And so the principal drove away. And then she also passed out notes to all the teachers that said there's a special assembly today. And she signed it with a J because that was the principal's name, but it was also her name. So she wasn't technically lying. She put her own initial down there. But it's the way the principal just happened to sign the notes. Special assembly. And so when the principal's gone and all the kids come into the auditorium, they politely asked all the teachers to leave. And the teacher said, okay. And... The students had their own rally. And Barbara Johns gave a speech to 450 students. She said, here's our plan. We go on strike. We're not coming to school until we get a roof that doesn't leak, until we get a new building. And they said, if the police try to arrest us, I don't think there's enough jail cells to hold all 450 of us. And so the students agreed. And this is a picture of some of them protesting. The NAACP showed up and said, there might not be enough jail cells in this city, but there is in this whole county. Let's come up with a different plan. I don't want anyone going to jail. And they said, also, we want to help your cause, but let's do something different. Let's not fight for a new building or a non-leaky roof. Let's demand that we just get to go to school with the other kids. Why do we have our own awful garbage building segregated from the rest of the community. And they said, okay. And they went back to school and they created a lawsuit. And that lawsuit joined a bunch of other lawsuits. And five lawsuits joined together to rise to the Supreme Court, which became what we know as Brown v. Board of Education. This was the only student-initiated civil rights education movement. Barbara Johns at 16 years old was leading the way, and it ended segregation-based education in America. She used all the influence she had to lead a meaningful, significant thing in history. Like Lydia, Barbara influenced the people around her for the better, changed the course of history in her nation. We continue to learn from both these women, but especially from Lydia,
the value of Jesus-centered leadership, what it means to take what influence you have and use it for the, on the people around you for good, to get them closer to God. And by the way, let me say about Lydia, even though we just talked about Bar, Lydia is not a pastor. This isn't just something for clergy to do. This isn't just something for people who, uh, you know, are at church all day, every day. She's a businesswoman out in the community using the influence she has on the people around her to help them bring them closer to Jesus. This is something that any one of us can do. Any one and every one of us has influence somewhere, whether it's with our kids or our family members or our coworkers, our classmates, wherever it is, you have influence somewhere and you can use it for good. In fact, we believe, most Christians believe, that you can be called anywhere. Your calling isn't just to, you, you, I'm not the only one called to do this that you're all called and wherever you are can be a calling from the Lord to use influence for good. By the way, Lydia is not an apostle. I mean, Lydia is not a, a, a pastor. She's not clergy. She's not a priest. But the Eastern Orthodox Church gives her the title, equal to the apostles. She's so important in some branches of Christianity that she gets two feast days a year, which hardly anyone does. And this is, apostle is like the highest office you can hold in a church, and she gets the title equal to the apostles. That's her official title throughout most of Christianity. Not a pastor, but she used her influence in such a way that she gets the title equal to the apostles. What does God want us to feel in our heart? What does God want us to experience? How does this story supposed to impact us? I'm going to say this. This is going to be way too simple, but hopefully you go on this journey with me. What I see in Lydia is that leaders are learners. And what do I mean by that? I see the way the Lord enabled her to sit and listen with Paul and receive the message of Jesus. And she was open to the Spirit's guiding, and she was open to the message of Paul, and that made all the difference. So even though she's this top-tier leader in her community through business, through her own household, she's running her own household, which very few women did at this time, she's still open and receptive to what God is doing in her life. I see this in Proverbs 9. Teach the wise, and they will become wiser. Inform the righteous, and their learning will increase. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Leader Lydia was open to Paul's preaching. And because she sat and listened and was open, even though she's just a boss in every other part of her life, even though she's willing to hear this stranger come and teach them about Jesus, it says, because of her openness, Scriptures tell us that the Lord opened her heart to embrace Paul's message. I'm always so impressed with people who know a lot or seem to be at the top of their game, and they still are humble and open and receptive enough to learn and listen and be changed. It reminds me of the story of Michelangelo, Michelangelo the great artist, sculptor, we know Michelangelo from lots of different things. This is the Pieta. He did it when he was 23. Um, one of my favorite stories uh, is that back in the day when you did art for the church, you weren't supposed to put your name on it. You were supposed to be humble. And, and so he didn't. 
put his name on it, and everyone gathered around to look at it. He's 23 years old, and he sneaks into the crowd, and everyone's going, who, who did this? Who, who made this piece? And somebody said, I heard it was Michelangelo, and they said he's too young. And also, he's from a region where dumb people are. Dumb, dumb people can't make stuff like this. So the first time it was ever graffitied was him that night sneaking back in, and across the sash of Mary, he wrote, Michelangelo did this. It says it right across her sash. And so, uh, but that, uh, it's what I've heard. Then, he, you know, we, he did the Sistine Chapel when he was 33. Standing on, he invented a scaffolding system. So he invented all kinds of stuff. He's got pictures of helicopters like 400 years before helicopters ever even thought of existing. At 37, he did the David. And I always love to show this picture because it's way bigger than you think it is. But at 71, he was looking to retire. He lived to be 80, 88. And I didn't know this until this week, but at 71, he was looking to retire, and the Pope came to him and said, hey, we're trying to build the tallest dome the world has ever seen. We've had five architects, and they were all garbage. We need you to do it. And he said, I don't know how to do architecture. I can sculpt. I can paint but I've never built big buildings before. And they said, you'll be fine. And so they asked him to build, build St. Peter's Basilica. And so he came up with the design. They say this may be the greatest piece of Renaissance architecture there ever was. Certainly the largest dome at the time ever constructed. Still one of the largest domes in the world. At 71 years old, he started this and worked on it till his death. I bring him up because he has a famous saying attributed to him. William Blake did this etching of him, and on the etching it says, Ancora Imparo, and it sounds like a Harry Potter spell. Ancora Imparo. <laughs> but it means I'm still learning. One of the greatest masters there ever was said at 78, 80, 87, he died at 88, right? 87 years old, they said, he said, a year before he died, I'm still learning. I'm still learning. I love when people who are at the top of their game are open and receptive enough to admit, to own, to hear, to receive, to grow. Certainly, we learn that from Lydia. She is at the top level of her field. She runs her own household and her social setting, her societal position. She is at the top of what women did in this culture and at this time, and still she is open and receptive and humble. She worships God. She's open to Paul's words and listens intently, even though he's some stranger that just showed up. He said, hey, I had a dream about this man. And she's like, there ain't no men here, man. I don't know what to tell you. And he's like, let me tell you about Jesus anyways. And she receives it, and her heart is opened. Literal words are that, the Lord opens her heart to respond to Jesus. She's, her heart is open. If we can learn anything from Lydia about heart, it's that we can be people who are open and receptive. If these people at the top of their game can be open and receptive, certainly we can too. And because of her receptivity, because she was willing to continue to learn and grow and be humble, because of all that, the reason Lydia gets touted so much is because she's the first person to become a Christian on the European continent. Paul leaves the Asian continent and 
moves over to Greece, Macedonia, the European continent, and she's the first Christian convert in the West. If you need a map, here's Africa. There's the Middle East and Asia. And he crosses over into Philippi. She's the first Christian. Her house becomes the first church in all the Western world. Continues to be at the top of her game. Continues to be a boss. But continues to be receptive and open to the Lord's leading and guiding. What does God want us to do with this passage? What great example can we take from Lydia that we could put into practice in our own life? It's this. I want you to be so hospitable that strangers become siblings. So hospitable that strangers become siblings. Lydia was hospitable. It was the proof of her faith in Jesus. Once she was baptized, she urged them to stay with them. Stay at my home, she said. She persuaded us. What, what are her words? If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, if you prove, if you can discern that my faith in Jesus is real and that my baptism is real, if you can discern that my faith is good and real and right, stay at my house. Her hospitality is the proof of her faith in Jesus, and she persuaded them. Paul is brilliant. Paul is not often persuadable. Let me say, there's lots of, <laughs> there's lots of biblical texts for Paul's like, these people think they're right and they're wrong. I'm right. Like Paul sometimes is like, he's like, don't make me, don't make me start bragging too much. There's a couple texts. Where he's like, don't make me lose my mind, he says. He's like, he's not easily persuadable. One of the most brilliant men of his time. One of the most educated, brilliant men of his time. And Lydia persuades him. And Paul often did not stay in people's homes. He says multiple times, I try not, when I show up to plant a church, I don't want to take anything from you because I don't want you to believe that I'm here for personal gain. I'm only here to preach Christ and Christ crucified. And so for her to persuade him is, is a feat. For her to persuade him to stay at her house is another personal feat. She is persuasive. She is a boss, but ultimately her hospitality is the proof of her faith in Christ. And let me say this is not a feminine quality in Christianity. It's a Christian quality. She's not hospitable because that's what women were supposed to do. She's hospitable because that's what Christ followers were supposed to do. Here's a million verses to prove what I'm about to say. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, Hebrews 13. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, 1 Peter. Show hospitality, Romans 12. Jesus tells a story. He says, when I come back, I'm going to bring all my angels, and it is going to be like this great kingdom scene where I'm going to sit on a throne, and when I sit on the throne, I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. Sheeps is probably, is that a word? The sheep from the goats. If you're from Thermalito, it's the sheeps from the goats. And he gives a list of things about how he's gonna why how he's gonna choose to separate. The sheep get to go to heaven and the goats don't. And here's what he says. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who receive good things from my father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you before the world began, because I was a stranger and you welcomed me hospitality. 
is a Christian quality. It's so important that Jesus is going to use it as part of his determination about the reward you get. And, and let me add, I think hospitality is a dying art. Certainly it is if you're reading from, from biblical times. But even in our culture, I don't know if you know, but America is two times safer than it was in 1990. Violent crime has gone down by half in the last, I want to say, 10 years ago, but that's really 30 years ago, isn't it? <sighs> Twice as safe as it was. And yet we our distrust of strangers and each other has never been higher. The world, our, our culture, seems to be getting safer. Violent crime is down. And our distrust of one another is up. Hospitality is a dying art. It isn't only a Christian command, uh, but we see it being modeled all throughout Christian history. Monks all over the world, this is one of their rules, Christian monks. Anyone who shows up to our monastery must be welcomed as Christ. This is how important hospitality is to the Christian world. It's not just a command. It's a radically countercultural way to live and share Jesus. Here's my last story. Uh, Dr. Rosar, I got a question, and I, I was like, oh, a real question. And it says, doesn't Samothrace fight Godzilla? And the answer is, I... Maybe. <laughs> Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, she was an English literature professor. Um, she, at the intersection of, of queer theory and feminist theory, and she was a practicing lesbian. She tells her story, and she wrote this article, and she said, why do Christians hate me? Why do these seemingly very kind people get very angry at people like me? Why do they take this Bible that's full of so many beautiful things and use it as a weapon against me? So she said she wrote this article, and she said she got a ton of reaction from it. She created two boxes for the mail that came in. One was hate mail, and one was fan mail. And she said, I didn't read hardly any of them. I just threw them in the box, thought I'd see what I was going to do. She says, I, I was going to use it for research on my next project about What's going on and why are people so hateful, especially people who consider themselves to be religious? And then she said she got a letter from somebody, a pastor, who said, hey, why don't you just, why don't you come to my house for dinner? And she said, I jumped at the chance because I needed some research uh, information. I need some research subjects. And so I told him, I said, I'll come, but I'm writing this article and you're going to be my research subject. And I would love for you to show me some stuff in the Bible, but I'm going to use it to be critical of the Bible. And they said, yeah, we don't care. Come on over for dinner. And she says, I went to dinner. And she said it was just one of the most beautiful experiences of all these Christians gathered together at dinner. And they prayed, and they wept, and they sang, and they ate, and they had conversations about anything and everything. Nothing was off topic or off limits. And she said at the end of the night, the pastor and his wife gave me a hug, and they said, we'd love for you to come back next week if you want. She said, they didn't invite me to church. They just invited me back to dinner, and she said that was really meaningful for her. She said, I went to dinner there every week for two years, and then finally one morning, the Lord said, you should go to church. Two years later, she found herself 
Sunday morning at church, heart burning, feeling like maybe she was mistaken about some things, gave her heart to Jesus that day. And now she goes all around the United States talking about the power of hospitality. And she's got a 10-minute video that I almost showed you. I almost showed you, but then here's, uh, here's like 45 seconds of it. What comes naturally to me and what comes naturally to you is to hang out with people who are like us. <laughs> people who can maybe finish our sentences. People who don't scare us. But hospitality, biblically speaking, takes strangers and makes them neighbors takes neighbors and makes them family of God. It's a great joy to see the gospel bring people together who are supposed to be enemies. And it's a great joy to know that God never gets the address wrong. And if your neighbors aren't people you know yet, there's a blessing waiting for you. Just stole my line. I said... Be so hospitable that strangers become siblings. And then I watched this video and I was like, I know this video was made 10 years ago, but I said it first. I just need everyone to know that Lydia models what she says well. This woman who's from the region of Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, she's far from home in a city doing business where it doesn't seem like a family around her. She's now leading her community. And ultimately, this woman who's far from home finds a home in Jesus, and she turned her home into a church so that other people could find a home there too. And when Paul gets out of prison and he shows back up to her house, he doesn't find a household that's structured the way that Romans structure their household from the most important to the least important slave. He finds brothers and sisters. She took her household and turned it into a home and she took the people in her household and made them siblings. Jesus equips her to use her influence to make slaves and strangers into siblings and that's what hospitality is. Literally the Greek word is the love of strangers, xenophilia. We know the word xenophobia, we're afraid of strangers. The biblical word for hospitality is the love of strangers. Jesus equips her to do this biblical quality, to love strangers and slaves and the down and out and turn them in to siblings. Questions or comments? Somebody says they want to do dinner church. Somebody asked about Godzilla. Um, why are so many Christians resistant to women in leadership? Great question. Uh, there, are, uh, there are some verses that some bits of the Christian tradition want to emphasize that, like, I mean, the Bible's big, and there's lots of ways you can find verses to support whatever you want. And my assumption and the way that I read it is that there are some verses that are difficult to deal with. And I think good faith Christians can be on any side of this issue about women in leadership. Our church chooses to interpret scripture in a way that is supportive of women in leadership, but there are Christians who don't read it that way. And so if you ever wanted to know those, there's like two or three. They are somewhat obscure. They are somewhat difficult to understand. 
And if you want, we can look at those at some point. But there are ways in which some Christians feel like they're trying to be faithful to the way that they understand Scripture. We also feel like we're being faithful to the way that we understand Scripture, especially with stories like Lydia, who's the first Christian convert in the West, and her home is the first Christian church in the West. And she becomes a leader in this community, and she becomes equal to the apostles known that way for the last 2,000 years. Here's my summary, and then we are moving into a time of communion. If you have more questions about that, send them to me. Uh, With uh, your head, I want you to know that leadership is influence. Simply that. It doesn't mean you're in charge. It doesn't mean that you have been given a position. It means that you are using the influence on the people around you, hopefully for good and in a Christian way, hopefully for God. With your heart, what I want you to know and experience is that leaders are learners. And that we can be so open-hearted that we can be, even at the top of our game, we can be receptive enough to have Jesus guide us and direct us. And with our hands, what I want you to take from Lydia's story, that we can be so hospitable that strangers and slaves become siblings. Pray with me. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for the story of Lydia and the way in which she influences those people around her. Would we become like her? Would she be an example to us? of her leadership, of her hospitality. But most importantly, to her her open-heartedness to you. Would we, too, have open hearts to receive from you, to be transformed by you, to grow closer to you? And we pray that that would begin even right now as we come to communion. That this bread and this cup in which you promised to meet us in would be a moment of us drawing close to you, would be an action that demonstrates our open-heartedness towards you. And that it would be spiritual nourishment and spiritual energy for us to be hospitable, and to use our influence to help those around us draw closer to you as well. And Table Church, would you help me finish this prayer by saying the Lord's Prayer and saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.